Now, after these things, that 55, 60 year period, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Mariath, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all of his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. So four months travel time. According to the good hand of his God upon him, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach the statutes and ordinances in Israel. So this is our opening scene here in chapter 7. 60 years after Zerubbabel, here comes a second group of people coming back to Israel. Remember the Jews and the Israelites, one and the same, had been extremely successful in commerce and trading when they're in captivity in Babylon and then which became the Medo-Persian Empire. So they were successful. They had good reasons to stay where they were. Some of those kids had grown up and lived their entire life in the captivity and they were born into money and they thrived with the family business and they were doing great. So the motivation to leave that and go back to the promised land to inherit land or to start all over again, that, you know, we've said this before, we'll take a known dysfunction over an unknown better function. That's human nature. And we tend to like what we know as opposed to step out in faith toward things we don't know. And this certainly was going to be another journey and step of faith for those returning captives that were going back. A couple things in the context here. Artaxerxes is the king that followed Esther's husband. So I'd like to give you a timeline. And Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah, they cross over and kind of share a timeline of about 100 years together. But the famous story of Esther where she... You know, with Arihurus, the king, the beauty pageant that she won and then married the king, her husband, that king, he's the predecessor before Artaxerxes. So Esther, what we read about Zerubbabel the last couple of weeks, Esther comes on the scene after that and saves her people in the faraway land of the Medo-Persian Empire. That's, that generation has come and gone, that season, those events have happened, and now Ezra rises up after that under this new king, Artaxerxes, who replaced Esther's husband when his reign was done. So i give you a little timeline where we're at in the whole scheme of things, because, of course, we're moving toward Nehemiah and Esther. So I want to keep giving you these things so you can have it clear in your mind, the timeline of how these people interconnect in their 100 year of sharing the planet, if you will. It points out that uh, Ezra, it links him to the last high priest. Sariah was the last high priest, if you recall, he was not a good guy, but he was executed by Nebuchadnezzar in the fall of Jerusalem. So he was the last high priest for the southern kingdom, and he was part of the rebellion against the word of the Lord. He was part of the rebellion against Jeremiah and Ezekiel and those prophets of that time. And then it goes all the way back to Aaron. So it's interesting because Ezra is linked to us. Listen to me on genealogies. Ezra is linked to us as being linked to the last high priest and the first high priest, Aaron. 
So he's, you know, we just did the genealogy of Jesus, right, in Matthew chapter 1. So this is Ezra's genealogy, that he really would be qualified to be a high priest, even though there really isn't that context here. He's that guy, and he meets that criteria. And it says a very interesting phrase, and we saw this a lot in Chronicles, but in this text, it really jumps out at me for our first look at application. He was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. That's an interesting phrase. In times past, we've seen skilled at archery, skilled at this, skilled at that, when we're going through Chronicles. But it says he's a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. So he knew the word of God. It's kind of like what it says in the New Testament in the pastoral epistles, to be a workman rightfully dividing the word of truth, not being ashamed, and just rightfully dividing the word of truth, contextually, teaching the Bible, teaching it properly in its context, its application. It has that idea, but he was skilled. And we're told later on in the latter part of the text we read that he prepared his heart to, to seek the law of the Lord. In other words, he, his heart was passionate toward his purpose. His purpose in life was to know the word of God, and his heart, he prepared his heart to go toward the word, to be in the word, to think upon the word, and receive the word. And it's like David said in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man or woman who delights himself in the law of the Lord, and in it they meditate day and night. And when you meditate upon the word of God, then all sudden things come to you. When you're writing in your journal and you're thinking about it, it's like, wow, I never thought of that. That's very interesting. When you do a little extra study, when you read th- something, you go like, oh, I'll figure it out later. Hey, just Google the text, Ezra chapter 7, New King James Version, so NKJV, David Guzik. Just Google it and see what David Guzik has to say, the, the great commentator for Calvary Chapel Movement. Because David Guzik not only tell you what he's putting there, He's quoting Spurgeon and Poole and all these other great commentators. He's doing you a favor. The Calvary Chapel movement has a guy who for years once ran the Bible college in Siegen, Germany, who put together a commentary on the entire Bible, and it's right there if you Google it. You just Google it on your phone. And then not only does he have what he's got to say, but he just has these little nuggets of all these other great commentators. Take your time to learn. Go a little deeper. Learn a little more. It's good. It's good, it's good to be skilled in knowing the word of God and handling the word of God and being able to share the word of God. And it says to seek the law, to do it. Of course, you know, if you hear it and don't do it, you're like the person that sees yourself in a mirror and forgets what you saw, right? James, the book of James says that in the New Testament. But to teach it. So like not just to read the word, not just to kind of know the word, but really know the word, kind of like handle it properly and to be to purpose to really go after it and then to do it and even be able, even be able to share with others What's, what you've learned, like what God has shown you. And what we find more often than not is people don't just, sometimes people have questions about the Bible and they're legitimate. Sometimes people just want to attack the Bible and the questions are not legitimate, but you can kind of read pretty quickly. Because if people ask you something about the Bible and you begin to answer and they interrupt you, that means they're not interested, right? Like that's basic courtesy of conversation. But it's nice when you can give an answer and someone says, well, what about this? And you can actually say like, yeah. I always remember my good friend Greg Marshall, one of my best friends growing up when we traveled the world surfing. He's one of the best men in my wedding day. And um, he's Catholic background. And after I got on fire for the Lord, he, he came to me. He said, I've been reading my Bible and I don't understand this. It says that seeing they, they won't see, hearing they won't hear, that their hearts have grown dull lest they turn and repent and turn to me. It's a, you know, from Matthew where Jesus is quoting Isaiah, how God's given people over to depravity once they reject Revelation. In fact, Jesus says before that, to the one who has, more will be given. 
So for his generation, they had rejected the scriptures, and he's speaking in parables. This is a chapter with parables. So now he's speaking in parables, and they don't get it because they weren't willing to get it when it was obvious, and they're not going to get it when it's subtle. So he quotes, Jesus quotes that Isaiah text, and says, this is what's up. But my friend Greg Marshall reads it, and he goes, he goes, I thought God wants everyone to know about Jesus. Right? So he's just reading the Bible as a good Catholic. And he's like, I don't understand this. Why would God say they have ears, but they don't get to hear? They have eyes, but they don't get to see? And he doesn't let their hearts repent. Like, I don't understand. Well, I thought God loves everybody. But, you know, I, I was new in the ministry, but I was able to give him a good answer. Like it says there uh, in, the, in Peter, to sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. And I was like, wow, there it is. So you can't give if you don't got it, right? Like, if you're hearing a song for the first time, you're like, mm-hmm, like you don't have it. But some of those songs like Danny Played Tonight, we haven't sung them for a while, but like, I know that song. And I can sing that song with my eyes closed. I kind of know that song. That's Newsboys. I know it pretty well. I can go like this, like this, like this. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I got, I got some of it, you know. <laughs> and we can all sing glory, glory, hallelujah, he reigns, right? I mean, that's Newsboys, classic Newsboys 20 years ago. We saw him in concert sing that song over, you know, Irvine. So it's good. This is a reminder, we don't have to be Ezra the scribe, but most people are illiterate in the word of God. And it's good to be literate in the scriptures. I just want to encourage you, all of us, I, I read the Bible multiple times a day, well, before I even was in ministry, I was reading the Bible every day. So I know I just didn't do it because I was called to be a pastor. But I read the Word in the morning for my personal devotion. Then I read Proverbs in the evening for my personal devotion. Remember, in the morning, to be drawn to Jesus and to remind myself before I go to bed, don't be stupid. Proverbs says, don't be stupid. There's the wise woman, there's the foolish woman. The wise woman does this, the foolish woman tears down her house. You know, the wise man shuts his mouth when he should. The foolish man just keeps cackling like an idiot, and that's it. So I read, I move toward Jesus in the morning and morning devotion, and then I read Proverbs at night. I, I check the boxes, like, like, not under the law, but like, I get scattered. You all know that. So I have, to, I have my, my seven things in the morning, my other seven things in the morning, my seven things in the evening. And morning devotion's up there in the big seven. Mm-hmm. Striping's like the mid-seven, okay? Hydrate the second time. But the evening seven has Proverbs. And, you know, Jennifer knows before I go to bed, I'm going to read Proverbs. Sometimes she'll say, read to me what you're reading. But then what I've really worked on in the last year, as you know, is, is I worked on reading the text that I'm teaching every day. So I'm reading Matthew 3 every day right now to get ready to teach Saturday. And I've been reading Ezra 7 and 8 every day. Actually, ten and, uh, 9 and 10 as well because I wasn't sure how much I was going to do. But every day. So on one hand, for me personally as a disciple, I'm reading morning devotion in the Word to draw closer to Jesus and I have a journal. Then I'm reading Proverbs at night to just let the word really make me smart so I don't embarrass myself and I grow in wisdom and I serve the Lord faithfully all my days. That's what we are all capable of doing. That's what, you know, Jesus said, if my word abides in you, you will ask what you will and it will be done for you. So obviously we want the word going in like Ezra because Ezra was skilled in the law of the Lord. Ezra set his heart toward the law of the Lord to understand it, to do it, and to teach it, to be a master of it. Yeah, and that's good. You know, the world needs people like you and me going out in the world when I'm working at a surf shop like I did or at Sheraton Hotel and room service like I did. You know, wherever you go, the world needs people like, hey, ask him. They went to Calvary Chapel. They, you know, what's the Bible say about this? That's, that's what Luke got when he worked at Starbucks. Well, it says this. I'm like, 
Well, I don't believe that. Well, you asked me, you know, make your coffee already. You know, like, but it's good to have the answer and to, to have it. So just a reminder. Because we make ourselves skillful at all kinds of things. We can be skillful at surfing. Guys that love surfing just they want to get better and better and better. We can be skillful at all kinds of things. But if your first skill is to seek after the law of the Lord, the word of God, and to purpose in your heart to get after it and to do it and to know it and to teach it, then you're gonna, we're going to thrive and flourish in everything we do. It's just a good reminder that if that's your first skill, because it's, it's obtainable for all of us, then all your other skills in life will go really well. If that's the first skill that all the other skills overflow from, if you're a computer programmer, a rocket scientist, a school teacher, a landscaper, every other skill you have is going to just improve from that position because the word of God is living and powerful and it works effectively in those who believe it and receive it. So it's just a good reminder. And not only that, he had great favor. Like when the word of God is in you and it's working in you and you have it on the tip of your tongue, like the most powerful man on planet Earth, he's like, he's like Arctic Church's favorite person. Wait till you see this next, this next text. Let's read on. So he's the guy, like he's, he's, his purpose in life and his passion and his skills are for the word of God and the truth, and that's an inspiration to all of us. Verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand, whereas you are carrying the silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered to the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, Therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren, do with the rest of the silver and gold, do according to the will of your God. Oh, we've got to come back to that. Verse 19. Also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the king. The service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it with the king's treasury. An open credit card from the king. And I, even our exerges, king, issued a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribes of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Also, but wait, there's more. Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levite singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of the house of God. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on them, whether it be death or banishment, 
confiscation of goods, or imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing in, in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me. So now you get the personal pronoun on the text. Before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged that the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. <laughs> this is so contrary to politicians and people in power, isn't it? If you really think about it. So the Medo-Persian kings, they, they were, there are extra-biblical records, archaeological records, where they, people they conquered, so the Assyrians, we talked about this, Assyrians conquered people and they displaced them. So if you lived in Mexico, they might move you to Panama, and if you lived in Panama, they might move you to Costa Rica. They like to unsettle people and take them out of their environment so they're less likely to call, cause sedation and, and rebellion. But the Medo-Persians had a different philosophy. Their, their philosophy was, hey, Let's, let's find commonality and let's find ways to keep the peace. So let's let them, the local people, worship their gods, wh whoever those gods are. Let's be tolerant toward religious freedom and even, you know, sort of support it. And that way it's more favorable for us. And just in case their gods are the gods, it's good for us too. It actually is pretty, it's a, it's a pretty good philosophy if you think about it. And that's what they did. But even so, I'm just thinking the people that were the other direction you know, up by Turkey or whatever. I don't think they got the same treatment. I'm just thinking. When, when, when a king says, here's a bunch of gold and silver, it's a gift? Okay. Okay, so now governments will give you money. All right. Gold and silver without limit? I don't know. I'm, that's kind of fresh. But then they get in the, the credit card. Listen, King Artaxerxes is the most powerful man on planet Earth right now in this text. And here's this little Jewish scribe that he found favor in his eyes, because, of course, it says three times in the chapter he found favor from the eyes of, in the eyes of the Lord before him. So he's got this, he's got, he's leaving, he's leaving Medo-Persia with gold and silver and an open-ended credit card, and he's going to show up in the province going like, and nobody taxes us either. Like, not only that, you're not even paying taxes. Let's be honest. Between January and April, you're thinking about paying taxes. You worship leaders like Danny and... Giovanni, you got to start figuring out your 1099s. we got to send them to you. You're going to pay 30% on those 1099s. I guess spoke for Poncho. I'm going to get my Poncho statement. Uh, there we go. i got to do that and, you know, start organizing all the receipts for parsonage. And We do it every year. Taxes, you what? Death and taxes. How much favor is this? No taxes for all the priests, the Levites, everybody. It's an amazing story of God's blessing and favor upon them. And this brings us back to being skillful in, in the law of the Lord, but something even more important. The king says, hey, use your, the rest of the silver and gold do according to the will of your God. This is important. Ezra had built up so much goodwill and so much credibility with the king that the king's entrusted him with unlimited resources because he's proven himself to be faithful with whatever he has. So the one who has, more will be given. And who's faithful with little things, Jesus said, will be giving more things. And so you look at this, the faithfulness. Like, I just think, so what we don't have in the story is what Ezra did before he's introduced to us in chapter 7, verse 1. But can you imagine what kind of a person he was when he got up in the morning and went to work? Can you imagine how, faith, how faithful he was here before he ended up with access to the king? 
and how he carried himself among the king and the seven wise counsels of the king, that he's got the sign off from the king and his seven counselors, gold and silver, private investor. Like you've got this great idea and you've got, you've got private investors because you raise capital in different ways. The banks might loan you money, this and that, but you might, you know, private investors, private investing, hard cash. You've got a private investor that so trusts your judgment with the success of what you've done in times past. They're giving you all this gold and silver. They trust your walk with the Lord. They trust your faithfulness with the resources of Medo-Persia. And they trust your wisdom for the future because you've earned their respect from the past. It's nice when people just trust you and you've earned that trust with whatever you're entrusted with. It's that process of incremental reward with faithfulness. And then the exhortation comes to be with the God-given wisdom down there in verse 26. God-given wisdom, so wisdom from God that's proven and evident to a secular king. And that to be diligent, uh, back in verse 23, to be diligent, and back in verse 22, to be diligent. So put this together. Uh, According to the will of God, uh, diligent, do whatever, just let it be done diligently, whatever it is, do, do it diligently, and use your God-given wisdom. Ladies and gentlemen, isn't that what you want people to say about you at work? Isn't that what you want the banks to think of you when you're asking banks to loan you money for your car or your house or your additional dwelling unit? Isn't that what you want them to say? When they look at you and go, like, you've got great credit, you pay your bills on time, you have a steady income, you know, you're, we called your boss. They say you're the best worker there. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what you want to be your life? Like, there's no eternal treasure just because you're faithful and diligent on earth. But there's no kingdom rewards in time, space, and matter when you're sloppy and slothful either. There, there, there really isn't. And you, again, you read the Proverbs every day. You realize, like, you want to be that person that's faithful and diligent with the things of life. Just always want to encourage young people to just really, you know, I was teaching the men's at Downey on Saturday morning, a couple hundred men, and they brought their sons, I mentioned this on Saturday, like some were like five, some were like 12 or 11, and different ethnic mix up there of kids and multiple generations, and I was talking to kids, there was a t- like a 10-year-old kid right in front of me, I was like, dude, let me tell you something, this is how it worked in the Brand family. I talked about having goals, and I said, you know, our kids all had goals in four categories. Their relationship with God, their relationship with their family, their, their goals with school and their classmates and their teachers, and then their goals for anything extracurricular. So with Leah, it was gymnastics. With Timmy and Luke, it was like baseball. And, you know, with Hannah, it was acting and drama, like their interests that were beyond school. And we would set goals. And I also mentioned when they're disobedient, rebellious, and we had problems with our kids, I would make them write their goals. Because their goals will remind them why they're making the right choices in the first place because we've got things to do. And our goals remind us, hey, I'm not going to check my brain out and my spirit out for folly here because I have too many things to do right now. Goals work that way. And before Ezra ever rolled out with those priests and stuff, you got to be sure, man, he had some goals. You don't just end up with all the treasure of Medo-Persia and open it a credit card and no taxes due. That just not, that's not dumb luck. The universe doesn't work that way. We know that. What you put out is what you get back. And now this kind of trust from this type of wealth and this type of political power for the Lord and to advance the word of God, man, that's, 
It's like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, what you do secretly, your Father will reward you openly. And the giving secretly, the praying secretly, and the fasting secretly, then the Lord opens rewards publicly. And we see it that way. And Ezra's such an example of that. And he said, you know, it's a big adventure for him too. And he says, so I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord was upon me. Verse 28. You should be encouraged. And I, I say this, we need to enjoy those rewards when we receive those rewards. If you're recognized for something great, Luke called me this week, our youngest son, and he's, you know, he works for Hyundai, as many of you know, but he's an executive at them, and, but he's praying about other things that the Lord might have for him, and so he's been looking like fighter pilot and CIA, FBI, stuff like that, because he's that kind of guy. But he said, hey, you know, Dad, you know where my certificates are from high school, like the crew or honor roll? I'm like, oh, yeah, it's in the Luke bin up in the attic. I'll... Everyone else took their bins, but you wouldn't take yours. So I know exactly where it's at. It's up there in Pop's attic. So I kind of do I get it. Took all these pictures of all these things. And, you know, it's like freshman, you know, Frost soft football, defensive player of the year, Isaiah Ward for Christian character, crew, leadership and discipling other students, honor roll, all these things. I saw students, sophomore, athlete of the year, Calvary Chapel High School. I'm like, I never knew he got that. And I took pictures of everything. I said, I never, he's like, I never knew it either. <laughs> you're, the, you're the athlete of the, you're the sophomore athlete of the year at Calvary Chapel High School. And so, you know, Caleb Bush is here tonight. His dad once told Luke, he said to Luke, I think you're the best athlete I've ever seen at Calvary Chapel High School. Pound for pound. He felt like Luke was, he's like, I've been in a lot of football games. You are like, you're the best athlete I've ever seen. I always tell Luke that. Yeah, like you just, Luke was always so focused on the next thing that sometimes he didn't enjoy that. And we get like that. But I was like, well, when I text him, I'm like, Luke, enjoy it. You were, you were that sophomore athlete of the year at Calvary Chapel High School. Enjoy it. Because now you're a dad with four kids and you're looking for the next job that God might have for you. We need to enjoy those things along the way that bring us to the place. Because we go from glory to glory, as the Bible says, we're being transformed from glory to glory. And all the faithful things that we've done sets us up for the next thing God's going to do. And we talk about this all the time. It's a setup. This beautiful story of Ezra, there's silence between chapter 6 and 7. But we can be assured a lot happened between chapter 6 and 7 that set him up for this kind of favor in the secret and the quiet place. And it's a reminder to all of us that when people see our God-given wisdom, when people see our ability to be diligent and faithful, that we can be entrusted with things and, and more things happen. And by the way, the reason he, Luke asked for that is because in applying for uh, flying $20 million jets for the government and for you know, security, national security, they want to know you're a leader. They want to know you're a leader. I used to tell him, Luke, you're a high school quarterback. He, he's like, I don't like getting hit. You know, I'm like, yeah, but on the rest of your life, on your resume, it's leadership. You need to understand on your resume for the rest of your life, you're going to put your high school quarterback and anyone in the business world is going to know that's leadership. He used to laugh at it. He thanks me for it now. He says, you made me be a quarterback. I want to be a running back. Yeah, but aren't you thankful? He's like, yeah, I am we got to enjoy the things that we are rewarded for, but we need to realize it all goes together. It's compound. It builds and it builds and it builds. This skill, these things, it it's all goes together. And you just keep growing and going forward. You grow and you go and you grow and you go. And it's this thing, it's that thing, it's that thing. And then it's from glory to glory as being transformed, like it says in 2 Corinthians. 
Now, chapter 8, we get some names, so here we go, because there's people going, and we got to know who they are. These are the heads of their father's houses, and his, this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. So he's got the letter, he's got the gold, the money, but now he, now he needs his dream team. Of the sons of Phineas, Gershom, and of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, Hattuish, of the sons of Shechaniah, of the sons of Parash, Zechariah, and registered with him were 150 males. Of the sons of Pahath, Moab, uh, Elianai, of the son of Zariah, and with him 200 males. Of the sons of Shechaniah, Ben Jehaziel, with him 300 males. Of the sons of Adon, Abed, the son of Jonathan, with him 50 males. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshaiah, the sons of Athaliah, with him 70 males. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zabadiah, the sons of Michael, the son of Michael, and with him 80 males. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the sons of Jehiel, with him 218 males. Of the sons of Shalomith, Ben, Josephiah, with him 160 males. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, son of Bebai, and with him 28 males. Of the sons of Azgad, Johanan, of the sons of Hakatan, with him 110 males. Of the last sons of Anakim, whose name are these, Eliphelet, Jileel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 males. Also the sons of Bigvi, Uthiah, and Zebud, with them 70 males. Now, I gather them by the river that flows to Hava, and we camped there three days, and I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. Well, that's a problem because they're going there to go do temple work in Jerusalem. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Anathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, Meshulam, leaders. Also for Jorabib and Elnathan, men of understanding. And I gave them a command for Edo, the chief man at the place Caspia. And I told them that what they should say to Edo and his brethren the Nethanim at the place at Caspia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. And then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mahali, the sons of Levi, the son of Israel, he, his name, namely, Shabiah, with his sons and brothers, 18 men. And have Shabiah with him, Jeshahiah of the sons of Merari and his brothers, and their sons, 20 men, also of the Nethanim, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethamim, all of them were designated by name. So he's got his passion and his skill set with the law of the Lord, with God's word. He's got the letter of authority, all the bankroll he needs to get things done and do it. But he's got to have his team. Who's he leading? Who's going back and why are they going back? And they're going back because the king says, hey, go make offerings in my name so the blessings of the Lord be upon my children rather than wrath. I don't want to be on the disfavor of the God of Israel because I've opposed you. I want to be on his favorable side. So, hey, buy animals, sacrifice animals. But what do we know from Chronicles in the Old Testament? You need priests and Levites to do this stuff. And so they, they, you need the skill. See, you can have the vision and the dream and the passion and you can have the letter of authority. You can even have the money, but you still got to have the right people. You got to have your team. And one thing we know is you just can't you just can't buy the right team. You need the Lord to bring the right people. And in this case, not just anyone can be a priest, right? Not just anyone can offer up animal sacrifices. You need people from the tribe of Levi. There's 12 tribes of Israel. You need Levites, and you need to know for sure they're Levites. And so here's Ezra. He's like, okay, we got everything we need. We got all these people. Look at all these hundreds of men. You know. 
couple thousand people all together. He's like, this is great. And he's like, you know, I'm looking around. It's like, I don't see, I don't see any Levites. Like, you know, we're going to build houses. Like, I don't see any plumbers. I don't see any electricians. Has anyone seen, like, I'm just not seeing any electricians. Do we, you know, we're, we're going to build this housing project. Is, it, is anyone here an electrician? Oh, I can dig the ditches and I can frame, but I, I don't do electricity. Like, we need some electricians. Like, you need, Ezra identified what was lacking for his vision and his purpose. And so he's like, hey, all right, so now he has a team that volunteered and came to him, but he realizes he needs more. So he's got to go, what's he doing? He's recruiting. He's recruiting. He's going out there recruiting to get the right people so he can do what the king has given him wealth to do, and he can do what's on his heart to do. So it's his vision from the Lord. He's got the finances from the king, but he doesn't have the right people. And so he goes out there and he recruits them. He's building his team. In any work of God and in any successful work in general, you got to have people that are called, qualified, and capable. And I would just say this to all the young people in the next generation. Know what God's calling you to do. Do everything you can to be qualified and make sure you're capable. What we really want, what society really wants, and what the universe rewards is people that do an honest job and they do it properly. Us older people, when we go to a mechanic or we bring a plumber to our house, we don't mind paying hundreds of dollars if they're a capable plumber and we know they're honest in what they're billing us. What we don't like is someone who's not capable and if they're honest and not capable, we still have the plumbing problem. If they're capable and dishonest, we've really got trouble. Because so often people that are capable are way overcharged and not really fix it all, so they'll need to come back. You need to bring them back. The ultimate integrity for a woman of God and a man of God is to be called to what you're doing, to make yourself skillful, like we covered earlier with the law, but now skillful with your skill set, to make yourself skillful at what you do and honest at what you do so people can trust you and you have a good reputation. The Bible says a good reputation is such a beautiful thing, and it's priceless. But when people get a bad reputation, oh, you know, our good friend Dan Russo over there in Vero Beach, Florida, he used to live in Costa Mesa. He married one of Hannah's high school friends from Calvary Chapel High School. He wanted to do contracting and flipping. So we say flipping, it means when you buy a house and you renovate a house and then you sell the house. So you buy low, it's run down, you buy it low, and then you make it improve, and then you sell it for much more, and you make a profit margin. That's called flipping, if you don't know what flipping is. And um, so he's a flipper. Well, he went back to Vero Beach, Florida, the Treasure Coast there, where my daughter and our family lives. And in three years, he's flipped 17 homes. If you've ever watched the flipping TV shows like Flip or Flop, you know, 17 flips is a lot of, that's a lot of flips. That's a lot of flips, man. And he's made money on all of them. Because you can lose, we all... Listen, no matter what you do in life, we all know you can lose, right? <laughs> that's, that's how it goes. You know, you, you win some, lose some. And I thought, hey, I'm with Dan Russo, and we're talking about real estate stuff. I'm like, hey, I'm going to get three years of hard work, free counsel right now. Dan Russo, what's the number one thing you learned as a flipper in Florida for the last three years? He looked at me without even blinking. He said, fire the bad contractor right away. Fire the bad contractor right away. 
See, we try and redeem those things. Like, maybe he'll show up on time tomorrow. Maybe he'll give us the report soon enough. Maybe these guys, electricians, he hired No, fire the bad contractor right away. He obviously learned that lesson because he said it quickly and passionately. Whoever he's thinking about is the opposite of what we're talking about. Man, you want to bring the skill set and the finished product that sings like a choir to the Lord on ordination day of King Solomon. You want your work to sing to the glory of the Lord. What you did, it sings and shouts to the glory of the Lord that you were capable, you did a great job, and you were transparent, and you did it justly and fairly. And I tell the young people, next generation, man, make yourself that person, and you'll be that 5% that always has work. People are going to bring their work to you. They're going to trust you, and you're going to thrive. And God, the good hand of our Lord is going to be upon you to do that. There are less, by the way, young people, uh, anyone under 40, listen to me carefully. There are less qualified people in every skill set in our country now than ever before. And the newer generation is less inclined to take on the skill sets. Uh, Emily's fiance, I met Emily Dean's fiance the other night. And I, you know, this is what I do when you're the pastor. So, young man, what do you plan to do with your life? <laughs> wink, wink, looking at it, you know, Keely. And so, oh, I'm, I want to be a general contractor. Like, you know, I was like, hey, good for you. Because I read two weeks ago, there's way less general contractors than ever before. And then one of the reasons there's a housing shortage is it's not the interest rates, but there's not enough capable people to build houses in the future. They're running out, like, there's not enough truck drivers, right? There's not enough truck drivers to deliver stuff. There's way less truck drivers now than ever before. Now there's way less contractors. So I look at them, hey, get it. Get after it and get it. Get really good at it. Make yourself a really good contractor. You'll thrive. See, that's... Ezra needed certain people that just, they just, they were called, they were capable, and they were willing, and they were competent. And they're, they, they were, they were solid. <laughs> I was talking to Danny the other night, the other day, we were just talking yesterday, I said, hey, hey, Danny, I'm scouting December, do you do Christmas songs? Uh, yeah, I got a couple. Okay, all right. Well, we used to sing Silent Night in the children's choir and stuff. He goes, I can, he goes, I can do some Christmas songs. I'm like, keep going now, keep going now. Well, by the time we're done talking, I said, Danny, listen, a year ago, you weren't a full-time worship leader. I'm, I'm like your dad right now. Like, hey, broaden your skill set. Poncho, all these other guys. Hey, Scott Cunningham, Danny Donnelly, these guys got a plethora of Christmas songs. So they've been doing worship for 20 years, and they've learned in December, pastors are looking for Christmas songs. I'm like, hey, you know, just, just, just show up and practice a little bit earlier and work on a couple Christmas songs. Give yourself three to five really good Christmas songs, and we'll see you in December. Right? Add, you know, it goes back to that skill set. Get better at what you do. Make yourself more valuable and do that. That's a good thing. I said to Jennifer this morning about Giovanna Bush. I said, hey, I, watched, I was watching her stuff on TV, on uh, YouTube. like, this woman can teach, man. She's a teacher. I think it was a worship leader. Like, oh, my goodness, your Matthew study uh, from Christmas. Like, I just taught that text two, a week ago. I was like, look at Giovanna go with that. More skills. More skill set, see? You bring more value. You, that's, yeah, capable. Competent, capable, trustworthy. Man, the last guy that made the Jets football team this year, he ran a touch, uh, punt back for a touchdown overtime on national TV a week ago. He's the last guy to make the team. How did he win the game for his team? Catching a punt. No one wants to catch punts in the NFL. It's the most dangerous job on planet Earth, pretty much. It's a train wreck waiting to happen. 
but he obviously learned that skill to be the last person to make that team. And that skill brought his team its first win of the year in overtime on national TV. Add to your skill set. Go get it. Make yourself out. Make Ezra come looking for you. Make Ezra come looking for you, want to hire you. And Ezra goes, can you do this? Oh, yeah. Can you do that? Absolutely. What's the cost? That's all right. There we go. Be that person. That's what I see here. Now we close it out. Verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all of our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying, the hand of our God is upon us for all those good who seek him. Uh, but his power and his wrath is against those who forsake him. So we fasted and treated our God for this and he answered our prayer. And I separated 12 of the leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brethren with them, and weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the articles, the offerings for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present had offered. I weighed it into their hands, 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 gold basins worth 1,000 dramas, 2,000 fine polished bronze, precious as gold, excuse me, and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also. And the silver and gold are a fuel offering to the Lord God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel in Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priest and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to, to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. Now, on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and... Nadiah, the son of Binui, with the number and weight of everything, all the weight was written down at that time. The children of Israel, the, excuse me, verse 35, the children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's uh, satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people and the house of God. So they made it. They made it in four months. God gave, Ezra had the vision and the passion and God gave him favor. Then through that favor, God gave him the resources he needed and the encouragement he needed. And then God brought the people to him. He saw what he had, what he could use. He saw what he needed. He went out there and got it. He got the capable people who are qualified to be able to do it. He added them to the team. And then he gave them their stewardship and their responsibility. Right? Like it's a stewardship here. Like he, these guys, he weighed out the gold and silver. You know, when you're responsible for money, other people's money, the Lord's money particularly, and or if you manage your parents' estate or something like that, you, you feel a great responsibility for it. If you've never been in that role, let me tell you, you feel a great reverence and responsibility for it. It's a stewardship. Everything's a test. 
what God gives you for your resources, what if you're involved in ministry and you have a stewardship. You know, when we were at Calvary Costa Mesa, Worship Generation had a budget because certain people would designate money to Worship Generation. So Pastor Chuck made sure it went to us. And uh, I took that very seriously. And believe me, Chuck knew what was going on always with that stuff. But one of my joys in leaving Calvary Costa Mesa is that we left with a plus margin. For, you mean, I don't really share this too often, but we left with a plus. You know, and, you know, when you leave with a plus, Chuck's like, well, all right, Joey. Like, you know, when your kids leave and, 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 and you know, when you borrow the car and you return the full tank of gas, like, all right. You know, like that kind of stuff. You know, all right, right? Like just, yeah. You feel better when you left. You, were, <clears throat> you left as a giver, not a taker. It's a responsibility, stewardship. And when you're faithful, little things, God gives you more. And that's, that's how it works in life. That and the ability to solve problems, right? When you can no longer solve problems, you've tapped out in your career or that field. But when you can solve those problems, then you move up because you can solve bigger problems. But with the Lord, it's faithfulness and stewardship. It says they waited out. You can't lose one, you can't lose one American Eagle right here, silver dime or something. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know Eisenhower 1962 half dollar, right? You you can't no, like it's weighed out. This is what you received, this is what you're delivering. And you know, all this know the story of Aiken where he took it and buried it and he got it didn't work out well for him and his family. You gotta be faithful. And they were, and I love this verse where it says, verse 34, that they waited out and it was exactly there, everything, and it was written down. So I leave with this final little thought here. It's good to write things down, isn't it? Numbers are always speaking. To look at numbers with your personal finances, to look at numbers with anything, the numbers don't lie. Numbers are communicating. In a universe of math, numbers are always talking. And when you need to make decisions, particularly bigger decisions, just Run the numbers. We call that metrics. you got to know the metrics. And if the numbers work, they work. If they don't, they don't. And you need to know. Don't be guessing. You need to know the numbers. And the more you hold yourself accountable for numbers, the more you can be faithful with additional numbers. Steve Thorne said to me years ago, and he handled large sums of money, a very successful businessman. I said, Steve, how, how do you handle like millions and millions of dollars like that? And he goes, well, it's the same as thousands. I'm like, no, it's not. And he goes, yeah, it is. You just add zeros. Okay, easy for you to say. The numbers are always talking. They never lie. I love this accountability. You see that faithful stewardship and the numbers. Think of your life and the days of your life and the calling on your life and the ministries of your life and the job you do as numbers and think of yourself as giving account for those numbers to the Lord because most assuredly, we will. And I'll be leading the way as the pastor of this church. So it's good. It's good to be reminded to be diligent, to be faithful and trustworthy with those things that God has for us in every aspect of our life, every aspect of our life. Yes and amen.